Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Balabas Benkreda. Balabas is an award-winning social innovator and the founder of a debating forum in the Arab world, the Manothera Initiative. So, Balabas, tell me a bit about this initiative. What made you set it up? Well, first, uh, Emma, thank you so much for having me on your program. It's a great pleasure. You are an inspiration. You are a mentor. You are a friend, and I'm so happy to be doing this with you. Oh, thank you. Um, so, um, a couple of things happened, seemingly unrelated events in my life that kind of, you know, the sum of these events kind of made me do what I do. Um, and, and one thing that was very important was studying the public sphere as a jurisprudence student in Frankfurt in 2001, where Habermas was still giving some lectures and we're learning about the public sphere and what the ideal public sphere could look like. And I didn't make all that much of it at the time. But later, when the Arab Spring happened, you know, I really saw the public sphere in full force. People, you know, emancipating themselves from imposed narratives of unelected leaders. And that really, really was powerful. I would say one other event is also important. And again, I didn't think it was related in any way at the time. I was a public diplomacy consultant. And but this, in Germany, I mean, you grew up in Germany. When well, did your interest in the Arab world suddenly blossom? Well, I'm of Arab descent, right? So that definitely played a role. And then I studied international relations as an undergraduate. So, you know, I developed a keen interest in the Arab world. And clearly the Arab world was, you know, the place where the public sphere suffered the most, where you had the least inclusion of citizen voices. You had, you know, discourses and narratives that are controlled by autocratic leaders. Really, really terrible yeah. public sphere that's largely dominated you know, by men as opinion leaders, men between 50 and 80, uh, you know, broadcasters that are very clearly aligned with governments, unelected governments, and trying to control what people think. And if it's owned by, if a broadcaster is owned by a business, then chances are the business has, you know, very close ties to the governing elite, right? So it's a major problem for the public opinion information process. Um, but I was going to say, you know, when I was... Um, after my, my university years, I went to Dubai and I was working as a public diplomacy strategist. And that's sort of, you know, public diplomacy is the legitimate uh, promotion of a country's values and interests and, you know, its, its uh, industries and tourism. All of these things are kind of legitimate. It's kind of public relations for a country. And I was doing that and it was very, very interesting. Um, and, and, you know, I remember one day, uh, we were looking for a commentator to go on German television uh, and speak about the Dubai financial crisis. And my employer at the time, you know, who's desperately trying to find somebody, this was a breaking story. The whole world was talking about the Dubai financial crisis, and we just couldn't find an expert that, at that short notice. So he's like, you do it. I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> I can't do this. I'm not the kind of guy who's on television. So he pushed me to do this, and I took a red eye, and literally overnight, I found myself in Germany, and I was live on that program. I was supposed to be there for 20 minutes. They kept me for two hours. Wow. And I had thought that I just couldn't be on TV. I saw myself, uh, myself as a behind-the-scenes kind of guy, as a strategist, you know. But that, that was really a formative experience because what it made me realize is, you know, and far from saying everybody can be on TV, that's not what I'm saying, 
But it made me realize if I can, you know, if I thought of myself as somebody who could never be on TV, there must be so many others, so many others who have a hidden potential that we're not tapping into. Um, and that's a tragic loss of potential. Yeah. So that's why this idea of average citizens appearing on television became so integral to the model of the Munadar Initiative, which is the debate uh, forum that I started at the beginning of the Arab Spring. Um, and that's why it happened so quickly, because I knew exactly what it had to look like, why I was doing it. And that's why it started, you know, literally on the 26th of J uh, January, uh, the day after January 25th in Egypt, um, the idea was born on the 1st of February. I quit my job. And by that time, we already had the website for the forum. And I knew that, you know, bringing in average citizens who think they can't be on TV, they can't be an opinion leader was going to be a critical component. And as you know, you know, that's still an integral element. So people qualify online, they submit videos of up to 99 seconds, the audience votes and the winners, random youth from anywhere in the Arab world. In fact, mostly women, mostly female youth get to be on a primetime television program. That's fantastic. I mean, how widespread is it? What's the reach? How many people are watching? <clears throat> how many people are participating? So at this stage, you know, we're just setting a new record. Um, I was checking yesterday. We have 1,200 direct participants who submitted videos on our current competition. It's been thousands and thousands over the last few years. Uh, an average debate will be four or five or 600 uh, uh, video participants. But then we also have an outreach program because the idea is to go beyond the tech-savvy layers in order to be truly inclusive because you don't want this to be dominated by the people who are constantly online yeah. and, you know, the sort of urban elites on that are already on Twitter. So we have this broad outreach program that, um, that and it's based on a curriculum that we designed specifically for people who are not constantly online, marginalized communities. We call them YWM. So these are the most neglected voice, voices in the Arab world, youth, women, and marginalized. In fact, the vast majority of Arabs, right? So we yeah. designed a curriculum to engage, you know, YWM in, in debates, and that operates now in 13 countries on the ground where we have trainers that we train. So they go through a training of trainers process, go back to their communities, seek out some of the most neglected voices, give a one-day workshop, and at the end of which you can record your contribution. And out of those workshops, we get some of the most amazing contributions. And it really fills me with so much happiness to see that, you know, we're tapping in that into that potential. And if we do it at scale, we really, really can move something. And how do you finance this? So at the beginning, it was mostly all of my savings. because <laughs> <laughs> So I was broke that within was a year pension. or two. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, the as the forum um, gained prominence, including international prominence, and was covered by media, um, we started to get a lot of support from um, foundations, Western governments. Right now, a lot of our budget comes from the Swedish International Development Agency, the Federal Foreign Office of Germany. We have the Robert Bosch Foundation in the mix, European Endowment for Democracy. So a couple of funders whose values are aligned with ours, and that's really, really important, especially if you're working on a sensitive topic like political debates in the Arab world. Yeah. So the debate that I watched recently was, is Trump good for the Arab world? Can you tell me a bit more about that debate? What was the outcome of it? And what are the reasons that some people in the Middle East do actually support Trump while others oppose him? Well, remarkably, it was 29%. You wouldn't think that. But, um, you know, 29% for uh, that, that believe Trump, believe is, Trump better is better for the Arab yeah. world. Um, it was remarkable. It was truly a remarkable 
um, online competition. Because I think, you know, what we tried to do with this, Emma, was um, to bring it really to the issues. What, what, what does it mean? What, what would a Trump White House mean for the Arab world? Because, you know, the discourse was so focused on the noise that the Trump campaign itself was blowing out left, right, and center, and the Muslim ban, and so on. But really, there wasn't any debate, and it's so relevant to Arabs, right? Millions of Americans yeah. voted, but millions and millions of Arabs are going to be affected by the decision. So we wanted Arabs to understand the difference between the potential of a Trump White House as opposed to a Clinton White House, which is very different. You have Hillary Clinton on the one hand, who you know has an interventionist instinct. She's certainly pro-engagement. She believes in nation building, in democracy promotion, in human rights, and engaging with the region. And in the, a Trump campaign, that was essentially saying, you know, let let the Russians deal with Syria, let um, you know, let them deal with their own problems. Somewhat of an isolationist streak, for all we know, right? Because there's been so much that the Trump campaign blasted out, but there was clearly a difference, in, in, and the cru- uh, crucial difference being that Clinton very much believed in staying engaged in the Middle East, whereas Trump was was saying, you know, we're going to finish with ISIS and then let them deal with their own problems and perhaps the Russians can fix Syria. It's a huge difference. So we just wanted to, you know, really create a debate that allows people to understand this difference. Because it seems, you know, a lot of people in the Middle East over the last decades would always complain about what America is doing in the Middle East. Now a new president's coming in who might want to do far less in the Middle East. So do people see that as positive or negative? I guess some see it, see it as positive. Others see it as negative. Um, I personally, you know, I am concerned about what a Trump White House would mean for the Arab world, especially because there doesn't seem to be any coherent ideology or plan for that matter. But, um, you know, at least as evidenced anecdotally in our debates, you know, there, there is a majority of people who favored, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, approach to, to foreign policy. I mean, we've seen in the U.S. elections, in the Brexit campaign in the U.K., um, a new phenomenon that people are talking about as post-truth, where they're no longer objective facts. How did this come about? How did we stop having facts? We can have opinions on different things, but how did we lose sort of a common understanding of what facts are? Well, as someone once said, everybody's entitled to their own opinions, but not everybody's entitled to their own facts. And this is a major problem. Um, You know, I think, though, it's important to see it as a broader issue in the sense that the deterioration of the public sphere is a vast uh, problem that the world is only starting to grapple with, but post-truth or the the you know the the deterioration of facts as a critical element as a f- you know uh, uh, as a cri- cri- critical element in the fabric of conversation is is just one problem. The other problems are, in my view, that there is that the the exclusion of vast parts of the population from public discourse has led to a lot of these problems. And in the Arab world, you know, we've talked about it earlier in this conversation, but I think it's very similar. If you look at America, for example, there's a huge number of people who didn't feel represented by the public discourse. And that leads to a lot of frustration and it leads to a lot of anger. And that kind of anger and pent-up frustration can 
boil up, you know, and I, th- I think that's a phenomenon that we're observing, not only in America, you know, and it's very similar to Colombia, for example, you do, you mm-hmm. know, anybody who, who followed the, the referendum recently about the FARC deal, you know, um, the former president Uribe was very much, you know, using the same playbook as the Brexiteers and as the Trump campaign, in that, you know, um, they were, they work with innuendo, they work with accusations, they work with taking away the debate from the issues to some of the most outrageous comments using, you know, outright fact denial to drive a certain mood and to, you know, to fire up support from the base. But in actual fact, it takes people away from from the issues, which is very, very tragic. And it's, it's a major problem. And I think another aspect, Emma, is really important. I believe that the existence of fora designed to foster constructive debate and their prevalence in any given context is critical to a good public sphere. So wherever you have, um, you know, fora that are organized, that are structured, where opposing sides meet and agree on rules, where the contributions are harmonized, where you have an element of perhaps audiences determining results, that's where you get a lot more constructive conversation. But instead, what we're seeing is a huge volume and a spike in lots of talk and rant that isn't necessarily the same thing as more constructive conversation. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing all these fake news stories. We're seeing governments and individuals subverting the information space. This is pretty scary. It is. Do you think there are things that can be done about this? You mentioned something very important, the subversion of information space is, and and perhaps more importantly, the subversion of discursive space. There are deliberate, very well-organized, highly determined and deep-pocketed attempts to subvert uh, discursive space, especially by Russians who are trying to subvert discursive space in Europe, in the Arab world, and in America. And it's designed to sow distrust in institutions, to, you know, raise doubts about democracy, to discredit values that are really foundational to Western society. And this is a really, really big problem that we're just starting to to understand. And, you know, one dilemma is that we focus so extensively on freedom of speech, and we should, rightly so, but at the same time, the, 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 the sole focus on freedom of speech has blinded us to see that it's only part of a bigger equation, which, mm-hmm. is the, which is the public sphere. And I think this is really, really important. And I hope that one thing that can come out of this conversation is a broader look at the issues. What constitutes a vibrant public sphere beyond you know, mere freedom of speech? What does it look like? What does a constructive, discursive space look like? And I hope that this can come out of it. Um, and, um, you know, what can be done? I think the answer is not simple, but I do think there are three uh, critical stakeholders that I think can work together to foster a more vibrant public sphere, a more constructive public sphere. And they are, you know, clearly businesses have a role in this in the sense that we have believed for way too long that markets and free markets in particular can somehow, you know, in and of themselves intrinsically lead to a vibrant public sphere. It doesn't work that way because the market doesn't have 
a democratic mandate. You can't go to Silicon Valley and, and, and blame them for all of the problems on the internet mm -hmm. because they're there to make money. And to a degree, we have to understand them. So, um, and we don't want to get into territory where, you know, we ask them to censor content because I also think that's problematic. And, and to that degree, some of what European governments are saying, I find problematic. The, the, the role that they could play is to understand the problem and work together with other stakeholders in order to counter some of the problems of online discourse, such as polarization, information bubbles, fake news, and so on. But we need them on board. We can't legally force them to do something. Um, so that's businesses. But I also think civil society could play a major role. Um, you know, you look at the Monadra initiative, it's very valuable to have a, a grassroots forum civil society that enters the, the public sphere through a syndicated program where multiple television channels from seemingly different ideological backgrounds agree to simulcast a program that crowdsources citizen voices. Something like that is very valuable, and I think it could work outside as well. Um, and, and then, of course, liberal democracies. Um, that should be a natural partner, you know. Um, I think um, liberal democracies can undertake significant efforts, including through development, uh, to, to use a new lens on development and perhaps, you know, focus on challenges of the public sphere in other countries and support countries that are seeking to build up a constructive discursive space. I think that's really important. So if these three work together, I think we have a very good chance of addressing the problem. So I have to ask you, what are you planning to do next? I mean, you've really got your work set out for you. Do you have a sense of where it is that you should focus, what it is that you can influence? Are you going to try and get them another dialogue broader in the Arab world? Are you going to try and bring it to the States and to Europe? What are your plans? What's your vision? So I definitely want to continue to grow the Munadra initiative in the Arab world. I think that's important at this stage where, as I said, in 13 countries on the ground. So there's some work to do. There are 22 Arab countries. But of course, it's also important to realize that there are many, many Arabs outside the Arab world, diaspora communities that have a rightful place in the Arabic public sphere. Um, so that is definitely a project. And we're going to continue to grow, especially, you know, perhaps not so much by adding more debates, but actually scaling the program by the by adding more television partners. We have a long way to go, but we can significantly grow the impact uh, through that model. Um, but as you said, it's very, very important, and I'm thinking very actively right now about how we can bring the model outside, because you know I'm often approached by people who want to bring it to Mexico, Ecuador, Ghana. Mm -hmm. I've had serious, uh, you know, proposals to bring the project to so, some of these countries. So so what is needed right now is a, is, a, is a good strategy to scale the initiative beyond the Arab world, especially at this time. Well, Bella Baz, good luck with your work and thank you so much thank for joining me. Thank you so me. very much, Emma. Thank you.